sound effects. Yeah, they, they tell you when you're gonna preach that like the world will just throw everything at you and the last thing was my printer not working this morning, but that's what computers are for, so. Um, as Paul said, I, I am Cade. I've been attending here since 2010, and I've gotten to serve in a lot of capacities over the years. Um, I think people would say my spiritual gifts, beyond asking spicy questions, which anybody who's ever been to a congregational meeting is aware of, um, are probably like spreadsheets, getting things done, and making and delivering lasagnas, which I think the Bible calls leadership administration and shepherding, but I'm a big fan of cultural contextualization, so hopefully you can do some of that today too. And the other thing uh, Paul and Andrew asked me to consider as I introduced myself is telling you a little bit about the program that I did. So about four and a half years ago, a Christian women's organization named Propel, as well as Wheaton College, which is one of the top evangelical graduate schools in the country, realized that only about 10% of degree seekers in evangelical graduate schools were women which made them realize that half the church wasn't being fully equipped for the things God was calling them to, whether in ministry, in life, in family. So they set out to change that and recruit some all-female cohorts to the program. So I am really excited that I got to be part of the first cohort, that there are now eight and counting cohorts and almost 150 women on that journey. And I think God is going to do really incredible things through those women. And what's fun about it is that this isn't new for God, right? This is something he's been up to for a really long time. So we're, we're part of that um, lineage that he's still building. So we're going to talk about how God kind of calls and equips disciples today as we dig into our verse, which is Luke 10, 38 through 42. So if you're using the Bibles in the sanctuary underneath the chairs, that's page 816. I know when I was a new Christian, I always appreciated the softball of the right page. So that's my, my blessing to you this morning. Um, so as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I think this is a passage for all of us, for those who are still searching for the framework that's going to be reasonable and appealing and satisfying to, as a framework to understand the world and guide our lives. And for those of us who have already decided that the answer to those questions is Jesus. We have all, like Mary and Martha, found ourselves seeking and striving. So I am type A, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap for where we're going to go today. First, we're going to dig into the scripture and the places where English doesn't quite do the original text justice, or I think we'd benefit from a context from the rest of scripture. Then we're gonna unpack a few things further. The first is seeking. This idea of who is a disciple and why seeking matters most. Then striving in why and how we work, because we are called to work. And then this idea of tone, grace, and truth. And I wanna look at the revolutionary way that Jesus provides guidance and correction that's so different than how we usually do it in the world. So first, let's dig into that passage. So the first verse is 
part of the verse is, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So let's unpack a little bit about what's happening here. This isn't Jesus like stopping by a restaurant for a bite of food that he's going to pay for or lodging at an inn for the night. He's an honored guest in Martha's home. The word in Greek means to entertain, to receive someone hospitably. We know from other verses that Martha and her sister Mary and her brother Lazarus were pretty committed disciples of Jesus. While it's further forward chronologically when Lazarus passes and Mary and Martha summon Jesus to come help, Martha is actually one of only two people in the New Testament who, while Christ is still alive, actually declares who he is. She clearly is tuned into what God's doing here and is a pretty committed follower of Jesus. She actually says in John 11, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So this is pretty big deal hosting for Martha, if she even has some conception of what she later declares at this point. So it's pretty distracting. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. In the ESV, it says, listening to his teaching. The word in Greek that's being translated as what he said or teaching is actually logos. And when logos is used in the New Testament, it's a written or spoken act conveying the knowledge or meaning. But most notably, it's a title of Jesus. We know in John 1.1, we're told, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The word is a name for Jesus that emphasizes both his deity, but also his ability to communicate who God is and what he is like. So Mary's not just listening to some guest chatter about what's been going on in their day or their travels. She is learning emotionally and intellectually and spiritually who God is and what his intentions are for her in her world and the people around her. So Martha, Martha is distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Here, I think we see two important things. The first is the word distracted. That's a passive verb, and I'm guessing some of you are not quite the grammar nerds I am, but what passive tense means is you're being acted upon versus actively acting. In a little bit, we'll talk about this idea of missing the mark and being distracted as what we understand more deeply who God, what God is teaching us through Martha. But she's being acted upon. It's not some conscious, deliberate, hard-hearted thing that's happening here. The other key word in this line is preparations or work. In other translations, it's serving or serve. And this word comes from the Greek diakono. It does mean to serve, but it means both practical and spiritual ministry. When I think about this, I think about how the term is used really powerfully in 2 Corinthians 9. Those are the verses about the cheerful giver. And what's notable there is that service is practical. We're actively doing something, but it always flows from this deep spiritual beingness. And then coming to the end, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Taken away is afireo, to remove, separate, or cut off. If the wages of sin are death, 
What is death really? It's, it's separation or being cut off from God. This is a hint to us that it's not about losing, gaining knowledge that can't be lost the way you could lose your house or your job or a fortune. This is about Mary choosing to be forever united with God. And that's something that's for the first time being possible with Jesus. It's pretty much turning upside down this traditional Jewish notion that separation from God is inevitable until the Messiah returns. So now we'll kind of shift into unpacking those three things I talked about, the seeking, the striving, and then tone and this idea of grace and truth. So to dig into seeking first, I want to look at Mary and what we can learn from her about seeking. I want to suggest that it has pretty profound implications about, first, who is a disciple, what God wants from each of us, and the investments we should be making on our journey with God. So the most striking thing every time I read this and why it gets me really excited, especially as a woman, is like, Mary is at Jesus' feet. Like, I get really excited. Like, y'all, Mary is at Jesus' feet. Like, think about this. How many rabbis of the time were allowing women to come sit at their feet? And if you think about who else is at his feet, who the other disciples are, these are like fishermen and tax collectors. Rabbis were not inviting these kind of people to sit at their feet. And it's not just that they're listening in or catching a sermon from afar on a Sunday, right? Like, they're not he's not just imparting head knowledge. He's modeling how to live and how to break bread, how to treat one another, how you build community, how you build a ministry. He's revealing so much about the character of God that we should have already come to expect, but somehow they still hadn't. And I think today, even now, we don't... When we look back to the Old Testament, I think this theme holds true there as well. God isn't playing with the A-team, even though he's holding firm to plan A, which is to use people to do his good work in the world, right? I think about, like, Abraham. He's supposed to be the father of nations, but he's nearly 100 by the time his first child is born, and that's after he's tried to give away his wife as his sister at least twice. I think about how King David becomes an adulterer and a murderer before he repents, um, God uses Rahab, a prostitute, to shelter Joshua's spies in Jericho. And despite literally running the opposite direction, being one of the more hard-hearted people God uses in the Bible, that God is determined to use Jonah to bring about the repentance and the deliverance of Nineveh. We could do this for hours. There's probably an example on almost every page of the Bible. And the same is true of the New Testament. So Jesus isn't concerned about the qualifications of his disciples. If he were, he'd be choosing somebody like Nicodemus, who Pastor Paul talked about last week. Somebody who was the teacher of Israel, right? But those folks are often not the ones interested in Jesus. And instead, God chooses the humble, unqualified people, the vulnerable, the weak, the overlooked. Because what he's doing He's not going to do through their qualifications or skill. He's going to do through his power. It's not their abilities. It's their availability, right? God's not calling the already equipped who are ready to go do things for him, the people who think they have all the answers. He's going to equip those he calls, and he always does that sufficiently. So God's chosen Mary and each and every one of you who would hear the gospel to be part of his story and plans. The veil's not torn here yet, 
but already Jesus is ushering in a kingdom where anyone willing can be a disciple. So what does God want from us? We hear Jesus say to Martha that Mary has chosen what can't be taken from her. And I think that's what Jesus wants for all of us. We need to look a little bit closer to this idea of sin and how the Jews or the Greeks saw it. And the word used is hamartia. And that doesn't translate to like, you're an evil, hard-hearted, hopeless person. It translates quite literally as to miss the mark. And that's a different, really helpful frame, at least for me. And it means that often our greatest sin is idolatry, to put anything in the place that God should be. And often those are good things, things like work or control, sex, power, or family. These things can end up over time separating us from God because we've missed the opportunity to put our faith and trust and worship where it ought to be and have these things flow from it um, rather than staying firm in God in the place um, that's never going to fail or let us down. So the Jews had come to kind of expect the status quo was hamartia, that they're going to miss the mark and their lives are going to be marked by sin and a lot of sacrifice and prayer and rituals, just hoping that at some point the Messiah might return to end all this. But now Jesus is actually saying the day has arrived. God has returned to bring us back into connection, into alignment and relationship. So separation isn't going to be a reality anymore. That God and everything he wishes to do in in our lives can't be taken away from us anymore if we just place our trust in him. So now I want to talk a little bit about this idea of investments. This is all pretty transformational news for people back in 29 AD. It's pretty transformational now too. Um, That Mary is going to choose to place herself at the feet of Jesus and to learn and soak up everything he's teaching her, despite all the other demands of the day. And God calls us to that same kind of investment. We need to be investing in our beingness in God before our doingness for God. The best illustration of what this looks like in action, why this matters, is in John 15. Same, same verses we heard in our call to worship. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. A lot of Jesus' illustrations are kind of difficult and take many sermons or many moons to unpack, but this one is pretty straightforward, and I'm grateful for that. We will not bear fruit apart from Jesus. It's just not possible. And we talk, we'll talk about trying to hustle our way to God in a minute as we switch gears and talk more about striving, but right now I want to talk about how we do cultivate that unity with God so things can flow from him. There are bookstores full of titles and thousands of hours of sermons you could listen to to talk about how we cultivate that unity with God. But I want to tell you after four and a half years of getting to sit at the feet of some pretty incredible professors and learning from phenomenal classmates and reading a ton of books that probably stack as high as I am tall, that there's just no substitute for getting into the Bible, period. I often hear people say that they just like want to know God in a different way, but 
this isn't a you-do-you-choose-your-own-adventure kind of situation. I just really don't think you're going to know what God you're chasing or listening to if you don't know him in the word. That is how we're going to be able to discern, is it my own passion or my desires, or is this a word from God? If I'm not in tune with God's character, actions, ways of working, how else would I find those things out? It's not just going to be through prayer. It's by getting to know the God that's been working actively for thousands and thousands of years in Scripture. It's easy to get angry with or blame God and forget who he is in his faithfulness when I'm not in the word and getting tuned into that bigger story. So my call for you that does not require tuition or special skill or thousands of hours of paper writing is to get yourself into the Bible as much as you can. Whenever you feel like you're drifting or you're about to lose your you-know-what with your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, or anyone else, just dig into the word. But that said, like I did just do this thing, and I would say, if you can make that further investment, do it. Join a home group, attend one of these Gospel Academy classes, pursue further training if you're feeling that call in your heart, because it will bear fruit and it can't be taken away from you. You know, as a personal illustration, for those of you who don't know me, like, I'm not a woman in search of like, my Sunday pulpit in doing, this, uh, in doing this class, right? So I'm an executive at a tech company. Nothing about that says sacrifice all your free time while juggling being a mom and a wife and fly to Orange County in Chicago a bunch of times and spend a lot of money to get a master's degree in evangelism and leadership over four and a half years. And as I mentioned, I did this program with an all-female cohort that's one of eight cohorts now. And a couple years ago, I was taking a class with a different cohort, still kind of catching up from a semester I took off when my son was born. And one of the women um, was like asking questions about like how we could continue to go further. And the professor said something that surprised me. He essentially said <laughs> that he was mystified by those of us not in full-time ministry would waste our money and time going this deep. And I was really, really impressed and proud that the woman who spoke up first, like instantly, was a stay-at-home mom in that season. And she was like, excuse me, like, even if I stay home and my whole sphere of ministry is my family and maybe a couple other moms I minister to, and that's it for my whole life, and I don't believe it will be, but even if it is, there's no better use of my time or money than seeking to know God more fully. It was the ultimate mic drop, really. And frankly, that's the question I've usually gotten when people find out I'm doing this program. When I say in grad school, people say, great, where are you getting your MBA? And I'm like, mm, not exactly, right? And I would give them the nice, palatable, like feel good, not awkward answer of like, well, you know, I've served in leadership and I wanna be more equipped to do this. And that's true to an extent. But you know, after that course, I quit saying that. I started telling people, I started doing this because I wanted to know God more closely and bring his goodness and glory to bear on every single area of my life. That's enough. That is enough. And that journey closer to God is no doubt the most valuable thing in my life. So go deep if you can go deep. And when you feel that call to go deep, it bears fruit even if the world thinks it's crazy. And don't be ashamed of that. Own it and love it and know that that is the treasure. So let's turn to Martha and talk about striving. 
Well, I just told a really nice story about how I was investing and sitting at the feet of the Lord like Mary. Anyone who knows me would put me in Martha's camp. My brand is girl who gets things done on time and on budget. So when I read these verses, much as I wish I could say I've been Mary and I've always been choosing what's better, more often than not, I'm Martha. When my son asked me what I was preaching on this morning, and I kind of tried to explain it to him, his response was literally, Mama, you're Martha. And I'm like, yeah. So my four and a half year old has got this one on point, right? If you need a clear like, take on where you're at, just ask your children, y'all, or a child. They, they know right away. So I suspect many of us are Martha, especially here in the Bay Area. So I'm going to throw up some Slightly provocative illustrations. Um, these were some ad campaigns that a freelancer platform ran just before the pandemic. Um, some of the pictures are a little bit blurry because there's ones I snapped on BART and I was like, holy cow, right? And the middle one is a little bit easier to see because I found it online. So the first one says, for those um, listening to audio, join the ter- church of do. And they all have this bottom tagline, endures we trust. Uh, the one on the far right says, do first, ask forgiveness later. And the one in the middle, I could be, that's like the Kate statement. So this woman looks a little frazzled and says, you eat a coffee for lunch, you follow through on your follow through, sleep deprivation is your drug of choice, you may be a doer. Um, Definitely convicting of me, Um, don't know about about you, but I just want to use this to emphasize that just about everything in the culture surrounding us is encouraging us to work out our own salvation through an abundance of doing, especially in the Bay Area. Y'all didn't get into Berkeley or Stanford or work at some of the most premier companies in the world or make it years living in a hyper-competitive place by accident. I know how hard each of you is working. So much like Martha's pressure, the stakes and the distraction we're surrounded by and the different philosophies on what matters most are very real. Those aren't artificial. So I want to come back to two concepts we said we'd revisit, distraction and serving, and see what scripture has to say about this. So the first is distraction. I would posit that distraction is often the gateway to idolatry. So something else tends to capture our attention, or energy, or passion. And there are countless things in the world that do that. And then they rise to a place where it kind of commands and satisfies us until we fail. And then they fall short, and we're really keenly aware of that separation, of missing the mark, that we put all our eggs in that basket, and then they all cracked, and then we didn't have much left to hold. So it's so critical to be in tune with the Lord. Right? To keep ourselves in scripture, to surround ourselves with Christian community. Yet again, like if you're not in a home group, get in one. You need this. You need folks that can say, I think you're wrong about that. That was one of the best things about this graduate school program. People would call me all the time and be like, no, you're off base. And I'm so grateful for those people. I need that. And I love that in this passage, Jesus recognizes Martha's distraction for what it is and responds appropriately. He just nips that busyness in the bud. It's not from God. It's not what's needed. And he's redirecting her back to what matters most. So the other piece here is serving. This is both a physical and a spiritual serving, like we were talking about before. The physical service, whether it's prepping a meal or providing shelter or giving to charity, has to flow from your faith and connection to, from God to God to be fruitful. 
In this story, it doesn't seem like Jesus is doubting Martha's faithfulness. And as we previously explored, she's one of a small number of people who acknowledge Jesus as Messiah while he's still alive. But he's calling out that she's decoupled her faith from her work. And the perception has been skewed by her distraction. Her desire to do something to serve the Lord and those with whom he's traveling and all the work his, it entails has made her lose sight of why God is actually there, right? He wants to share the gospel with anyone who would hear it, including her. He realizes Mar God has realized that Martha's heart has strayed into wanting to entertain an important rabbi and do it with excellence, which is an admirable thing but not to the extent that she wants that more than she desires to know God and let her serving flow from there. So it's an admonition, I think, to all of us that we find ourselves at the feet of the Lord before we serve, right? And that we bring ourselves back whenever we discover ourselves drifting, as only there we can grow, serve, and bear fruit. And I'm actually realizing I'm doing okay on time. And I realized I kind of like cheated here. I used like a nice illustration of like things that were provocative on BART to be like striving. But I also told you I'm like Martha. So it's probably helpful to give like a personal illustration here. So I think a good example of this is that we're going to find ourselves striving yesterday, today, tomorrow, and so on, right? Until Jesus returns, we're in this fallen world, and that pressure is going to be there, and it's going to be real. We're not just going to flip a light switch when we accept the Lord and stop striving, right? That's why I'm giving this message, why my four-and-a-half-year-old knows I'm more of a Martha, right? But I think we need to get attuned to the Holy Spirit, and that's why like, being in community and listening to the Word matters. So like an example of this would be about a month ago, I was working late at night. I had called Alan and been like, I'm not going to be able to pick up our kid. I'm probably not going to be home for dinner. And can you also do bedtime? And Alan's a rock star, so give him a high five on the way out. He's super dad. So he was like, got it. Great. Good luck. And I stayed late with a coworker, and I was hammering out a financial model. And it was pretty stressful. And I can like feel my heartbeat like rising into my throat. I'm like white knuckling my way through this, right? I'm in way over my head. I've never done this before. I'm trying to like own my function as an exec at my tech company. And the other person I'm working with finally just goes to the restroom, right? And the only thing that comes out, I'm like finally realizing, like I'm attuned enough to the Holy Spirit at this point, thank goodness, that what comes out is like, I need God right now. Like, I cannot white-knuckle my way through this. And I remember like, I probably have like a minute till this guy comes back and I just need to sit with the Lord. And I ended up just being like, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. I'm clearly not trying out for the worship team. But like that's what came out and can we get the to the place where God is so in our souls and we're attuned enough to the Holy Spirit that we're at the place where we're trying to white knuckle it and control and hustle our way to a result that God can put that back in its place, right? Like whether or not the financial model got where it needed to be and we got the re end result of who, what we wanted with the people we were shipping it out to, like God was still God. My salvation was still firm, 
right? Like, that wasn't what mattered. And I definitely shouldn't do that again the next night and the next night and the next night because my husband, my family, and my church and so many other things matter too. So my, my prayer for you there is to just be in tune enough with the Holy Spirit that when you feel it rising up, you can realize it and do something to get yourself back to the place where you're sitting at the feet of the Lord. So I'm going to bring it home in the next couple of minutes with an observation about Jesus that I also feel like is really pivotal for those of us who call ourselves Christians, because we're engaging in an increasingly divided, hurting, and broken world. And that's how Jesus does what he's just done in this passage. And frankly, I think that's revolutionary. And we see it across the red letters in your Bibles. So I'm going to put up a quote by an author and pastor I really admire named Sharon Hottie Miller. And what she says is one of Jesus' practices that is so hard to imitate is the way he dealt differently with identical mistakes based on the state of a person's heart. He didn't treat all Pharisees the same, nor the wealthy, the immoral, or even his disciples. Instead, he discerned their hearts. This sort of discernment is necessary for actual change because not every sin or mistake is a hard-hearted one. For some, the soil of their heart is still fertile for growth. But if we condemn a misstep with enough shame and force, we harden the soil ourselves. I couldn't say it better if I tried. I love that Luke says Martha is distracted by all the preparations. He tells us something really important about her heart condition. She's misguided and diverted, but not hard-hearted or malicious. She needs to hear that truth, no doubt about it. But she's also likely ready for that. And I think we need to consider tone more in how we engage with one another and how we engage with ourselves. It's easy, especially out of context, to read this harshly. How many times have you read this verse and heard, Martha, Martha, are you worried and upset about many things? Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. How often do we assume that the Lord views us with harshness and anger or disappointment first? But what if we use the context of the rest of Scripture? What if we consider that Jesus is looking at your heart condition and treading softly when your heart is soft and your spirit is willing? He's offering correction out of love, truth paired with immeasurable grace. And I think we often also flip the order with Jesus, and this is a part of our theology that I just like want to hammer home and correct. We tell ourselves, Jesus came and died so that God could love us. That's just dead wrong, right? Like, we're not looking at God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone believes in him can have eternal life. The difference is not subtle here. In case you missed it, Jesus did not die so that God could love us. God loved us first, and that's why Jesus came, right? That's important. Our salvation is costly, but we're not here to have a spirit of self-loathing and condemnation. And we're not called to do enough good deeds to be worthy of the sacrifice. His grace and salvation are freely available, period. So with that kind of kindness and gentleness in mind, we can wonder and marvel and give praise for Jesus' implicit invitation to Martha to join Mary at his feet. That's what he's saying here. He's not just shaming her and telling her to get back to the kitchen and feel bad about herself. He's saying, come, there's room for you here, and this is where I want you most. She can join the male disciples, learn from the one who's accessible and humble in heart so that she can find rest for her body and her soul. 
that she would come to deeply and tangibly know and experience that her salvation is secure in Christ, no matter if she clears the table now or two hours from now or frankly never. So for those seeking, let us remember that we are desired as disciples of Christ. God wants to bring us back into alignment and relationship with him through Jesus, and he has graciously given us his word alongside the Holy Spirit and the church as a guide to further know him, that our salvation and ability to be united with God are secure in Christ. For those striving, learn to identify those distractions taking you off course and forcing you to miss the mark. Stay rooted in Christ through the word and let your service be a natural outpouring of your faith and connection to God. And as we engage in the world as believers and with ourselves, let us be mindful of our tone and how we're treating our brothers and sisters and ourselves. We've all sinned and fallen short, but how can we kindly, with grace and truth, point each other and ourselves back towards Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, I just thank you for who you are, first and foremost, that you're inviting us and that there is ample room at your feet and that that's what matters most for us with you, that you just want us to know that we are loved, that we are treasured, that there's a different way free of the striving and the seeking and the hustling and the proving, that there's rest and comfort in you. And in that place of knowing who you are and your plans for us and for the world, we can be that branch tied tightly to the vine and that our work and our service and our worship would flow from there, God. And I just pray in the weeks and the months and the years to come that everyone hearing this would just keep a soft heart for you to be responsive to your Holy Spirit, letting them know when they're, they're missing that mark and that you would draw them closely, tightly to your presence and reroute them in you, and that everything could begin to flow from there until you come back, and it's impossible to be separated from you. Thank you, God, for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.